Welcome to Talking in Vain, a podcast of the Infusion Nurses Society. I'm Dawn Berendt, the Infusion Nurse Educator for the INS, and I am the host of today's discussion. Today we have the distinct privilege to have as our guests Lisa Gorski, Mary Hagel, and Mary Alexander. Lisa Gorski has more than 30 years of professional experience in the fields of home care and home infusion therapy. She is currently the chairperson for the INS Infusion Therapy Standards of Practice 2021 Revision Committee and has served as the INS president from 2007 to 2008. She is the author of numerous journal articles and several books, including Fast Facts for Nurses about Home Infusion Therapy. Lisa speaks globally on a variety of infusion therapy-related topics. Mary Hagel has more than 30 years of clinical experience and works as a consultant for evidence-based practice, clinically-focused research, and infusion therapy. She has primarily practiced as an oncology clinical nurse specialist and researcher in a variety of settings in Midwestern United States. Mary is currently a research scientist at Milwaukee VA Medical Center, where she facilitates and conducts research, translates best evidence into practice, and supervises patient safety and postdoctoral fellows. Mary is the co-author of the Infusion Nurses Society Standards of Practice for Infusion Therapy 2011 and 2016 editions. She is also an author of several book chapters on evidence-based practice and infusion therapy, as well as editor of the latest edition of Plumer's Principles and Practice of Infusion Therapy. Mary Alexander has served as Corporate Executive Officer of the Infusion Nurses Society and Infusion Nurses Certification Corporation since 1997. She is also Editor-in-Chief of the Journal of Infusion Nursing, the Core Curriculum for Infusion Nursing, and the INS's textbook, Infusion Nursing, an Evidence-Based Approach. In addition, Mary represented INS on the panel that revised the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention, Guidelines for the Prevention of Intravascular Catheter-Related Infections in 2011. She speaks globally on topics such as the benefits of the specialty practice of infusion nursing, the development of standards of practice, and improving patient safety. In today's podcast, we are discussing the infusion therapy standards of practice and specifically the revision process for the next edition, which is now underway. We are happy that you, our listeners, joined us and we know that you will enjoy hearing from these exemplary INS leaders. Mary, Lisa, and Mary, thank you so much for being our guest today on Talking in Vain. My first question today is for Mary Alexander. Would you give us some history on the infusion therapy standards of practice, and how long has the INS produced this work, and what are some of the changes that have taken place over the years? I'd be happy to, Dawn. Uh, With clinicians seeking guidance for their clinical practice, the first standards were published in 1982 with the groundwork that started in 1979, almost 40 years ago. And the 1990 version was the first time the document was available as a supplement to, at that time, it was the Journal of Intravenous Nursing. And now we are in the process of revising the eighth edition of our standards. I do want to point out 
that uh, developing and disseminating standards are core to INS's mission. So that's why we find it very important that this document is timely, up-to-date, relevant, and supported by the best available evidence. When we're looking at some of the changes that have occurred over, over the years, um, in particular, what comes to mind is a significant change in our 2011 version, and that's when we added the strength of the body of evidence table, which really helped give us some um, guidance when we were ranking the practice criteria. And I also do believe that it helped strengthen the document as well. Another change, that, and while it was subtle, um, was very meaningful, and in our 2016 version, we changed the name of the standards from the infusion nursing standards of practice to the infusion therapy standards of practice. And we did that because INS recognizes that not one discipline owns infusion practice. We realize that it's the responsibility of all that are involved in infusion practice. And this, also, this change also helps align with the interprofessional approach that we see in healthcare today. And the last thing I just wanted to uh, point out is, as a global organization, we want to make sure that our standards are applicable worldwide. And one way to help us do that, aside from the language that we have for each standard, is we have been able to make them available in three different languages. And currently, they are available in Chinese um, Portuguese and Spanish for those clinicians um, that would be able to use it in their practice in those particular countries that have that language. So this is definitely a very progressive work and it's a work that has endured over time. So how often are the standards of practice revised? Uh, Don, INS is committed to revising the standards at this time every five years. And um, again, this is in order to make sure that we're um, producing a document that's timely, up-to-date, and relevant. Um, and in order to be able to have it published every five years, um, the work needs to start pretty much two years after a previous edition has been published. So it, it, it's a constant work then. It, it really is. There is little yes. rest in between each of these iterations. So that was going to be my next question. You know, how long does this process take? And, and when will the new standards be published? Lisa, let's, go, let's turn that over to you. Okay. Um, the, the new standards will be published in January of 2021, so that's the um, quick answer to that question. And it really is quite the process to get the draft um, completed and, and ultimately ready for publication. Um, right now, I, I would say it takes approximately a year and a half to just get the initial draft ready. That's within the committee's work uh, for the committee members to work on their drafts, for the committee to review the entire document um, collectively. Um, and that would be in preparation for going out for um, then peer review. And after that peer review, it also takes a few months to really, you know, correlate all of the comments and suggestions 
um, from those who took the time to review the entire document. And the committee has to really look very carefully at each of the comments that are um, generated on each of the standards and potentially make changes um, based on those recommendations and also if there's any um, new evidence that's come to light um, during that um, last few months before we send it off to publication. Mm -hmm. okay. I guess I would just add that, you know, just to remember, I mean, it does take time, but this is a wonderful group of volunteers who are passionate about the, the whole topic of, of the standards, and all of the committee members, you know, work full time in addition to really investing a lot of time and energy into um, putting um, the recommendations together for the standards. Okay. Um, a little farther down in our podcast, I'm going to talk to you specifically about the committee, and I'm going to have you tell us more about that. But for now, let's let's talk about what are some of the goals for this iteration of the standards. I, I guess um, I, I would say that overall, um, the goal is to provide evidence-based recommendations for all relevant aspects of infusion delivery, and that really remains the same. I mean, that has been our goal. Um, but as Mary Alexander spoke in, in the beginning of the podcast to the, the global use and impact, we have to be very sensitive to that and be attentive to our standard statements and making sure that they're broad enough to be applicable everywhere. We really look at across the continuum of care as well as uh, across the multitude of countries that may be utilizing these standards. Um, just as, you know, kind of a easy examples here, in our standards, those are the very broad statements. We don't rank them. We believe that those are really fundamental standards that need to be followed regardless of, of setting or country, for example. Um, easy examples might be skin antisepsis. We know that regardless of where we are, we're going to do some type of skin antisepsis prior to placing um, a short peripheral catheter or a central line or any type of vascular access device. And we're going to put a dressing over that site during the dwell time of that vascular access device. Now, the practice criteria within the standard are going to provide more specifics in terms of, you know, where is the evidence in terms of the optimal skin antiseptic agent, um, but what's acceptable, because maybe not everyone in all settings has access to maybe the highest level recommendation, but we have other acceptable um, practices as well. So we lay that out more in the practice criteria, but we need to make sure that our standards are broad enough to be applicable everywhere. Okay, very good. So let's have you tell us a, a little bit more then about the uh, Standards of Practice Revision Workgroup and the process that's currently underway. Well, I'm very excited to um, speak to this. We have a wonderful work group, and for the first time, we have international representation in the Standards of Practice Committee. We also have twice the number of members of the committee that we've had previously. So um, historically, we've had approximately six committee members. Now we have 12, um, and that is a very positive thing given the um, just a vast amount of literature um, search that needs to happen and the vast amount of time it takes to develop each standard. 
Um, and as I mentioned, we've got global representation. We have nurses from Australia, um, United Kingdom, and Canada, as well as our American partners um, within the committee. We actually met in September, a live meeting with everyone there. It was really an amazing group uh, an amazing committee in terms of um, just getting to know each other and be able to work together. Um, very, very positive, so much enthusiasm. We met for about one and a half days, um, and that involved a very comprehensive review of the 2016 standards, um, discussion of the current state of research, um, discussion regarding the evidence and searching and the rating of the standards and also looked very carefully at some of our internal processes for ongoing committee, committee communication, which is very, very critical. Very good. So, Mary Hagel, you've been a little quiet on the phone. I want to make sure that, that we give you some opportunity to discuss as well. I know that you've been a part of this revision process uh, a number of times. Tell us, what's your favorite part about working on the um, SOP revisions? Well, thank you, Dawn. I actually have uh, two parts that I really enjoy, and that's uh, learning new information about infusion practice and meeting new colleagues, and in this case, it's from around the globe. I think with having a great team, our shared energy is focused on improving practice, and that makes it um, really an exciting and uh, productive team uh, because it does extend over uh, a year and a half of development of the standards, and then we have to constructively criticize uh, and review um, uh, each other's standards, which makes them better, and that's another way that we learn. Mm -hmm. Now, we already talked just a little bit about the significant literature review that is underway. Let's talk also about evaluating the evidence or the strength of the body of evidence. Thanks. I'll answer this. Uh, again, it's Mary Hagel. And I, what happened at our meeting in September uh, with our, our 12 members of the team is that we did uh, agree on consistency of the literature review, or the literature search, and then our review. For example, uh, to make sure that we're all getting as much evidence that is quality that's available, uh, that we agreed to search uh, three databases and that will include uh, the search terms that we use, such as a subject heading or a key keyword, and then identified our search limits. For example, we're, we'll start with our search from January 1 to 24, January 1, 2014 to the present, whichever uh, year or month we're starting it. Uh, for example, our first um, standard is due into uh, LISA and INS, in February of next year, so we'll search uh, up till that time, and which is a little bit different than what people are often taught using the last five years, uh, and that's because our 2016 standards, the evidence uh, or the research articles may not have all been abstracted into the databases, such as uh, Medline or PubMed or CINAHL. Uh, until for sure we knew that it would be January 1st by 2014. Mm -hmm. So that's um, something that we agreed to that is specific so that we're efficient in our search as well as effective. And then the next part is with the evidence that we 
accumulate, we need to evaluate that. And we try to use as much as possible only the research evidence, either the uh, synthesis of research, such as a meta-analysis, which we have very few of in, in nursing topics, and uh, or meta um, meta uh, synthesis or a systematic review, which we are seeing more. For example, systematic reviews come from uh, the Cochrane uh, work group or Joanna Briggs. The uh, looking at the strength of the body of evidence, something that we've been using since 2011 and 2016 is the INS table, strength of the body of evidence, and the group the group uh, in September of 2018, we reviewed that to see if there's any needed changes. And we are going to make a slight change and take out the regulatory uh, level of the evidence. And then um, uh, we'll, anything that needs to be addressed through that would be addressed separately then. But that will come out of the um, strength of the body of evidence table then. We will be advancing our appraisal of the evidence with this new 2021 version so that we look at quality. We had always been looking at was there power analysis done or did we know statistically if there was a um, sufficient sample size, um, but that was only one aspect of quality. So there is a work group that's uh, started uh, in fall of 2018 that will continue working to identify and agreed upon for our work group uh, the quality of evidence uh, that we'll all use to identify how strong is that one piece of evidence and then how strong is the body of evidence so that we can make the practice criteria. Uh, as many of our listeners might know, uh, so that we rate each of the practice criteria on a level from one through five. And that's something that we will determine. Um, will we add another component to that? The one through five is the level um, of the design of the evidence, uh, but then will we add a quality uh, parameter to that? And that's still under discussion, but that's something that will definitely add um, reassurance to readers of the standards in terms of how much they can um, uh, address each of the practice criteria and at what level uh, that this needs to be uh, changed or implemented into their practice sites. Mary, thank you so much for that answer. Um, it, it is clear that there is a lot of work and a lot of consideration going into this process. Um, here's a question that I think uh, we hear every once in a while. How do new concerns get added to the standard of practice? Um, I'll take this one, Dawn, because uh, we do often get asked through the years questions uh, from uh, clinical nurses or researchers, uh, any one of our uh, clinician colleagues, uh, to any of the committee members, and we keep track of those so that when we meet as a group, or we discuss with the chair, Lisa, to determine is this something that we bring forth um, or do we uh, look, look up the evidence individually. So if there is a concern or an issue, 
that's brought forth, for example, uh, to me, I will look to see if it's already in the standards um, or if it's been sufficiently addressed in the standards or in the INS procedure book to answer the question. And if not, I will look at the literature and then bring it to the work group to see should we expand the standard or practice criteria or is it a more of a procedural issue. But every question from any colleague uh, is addressed, um, as we mentioned earlier, as well as from the comments when our peer reviews uh, come in from the, stand the draft standards. Mm -hmm. Okay. Can I just add one thing? Sure. Yeah, I just wanted to follow up with Mary's, you know, discussion of the the um, strength of the body of the evidence and eliminating that regulatory um, level of rating. I just wanted to kind of reflect back on why we did that. Um, again, when we think about the global impact and we looked at that regulatory piece, we certainly didn't use it that often within the standards as it was, but it was very U.S. centric. And we certainly have regulatory bodies in other countries that may impact things as well, but we knew it would be impossible to really um, address that regulatory level, you know, at, at that global level. So that was um, part of the discussion that we had in the decision to actually eliminate that particular rating. Okay. Good. Thanks, Lisa. Yes, that was a, a productive discussion in our work group. It was, yeah. So let's talk about logistics a little bit here. So how is the revision work group joining their efforts when they are positioned all over the globe? Well, I can address that. I mean, certainly it is a challenge, but I think with technology it's become less challenging, obviously. Um, we certainly in, in the previous work groups, you know, used a lot of email, but with this work group we actually did establish um, a website that's accessible to all of us um, where we have, are able to place the entire document um, and even have that ability to chat and communicate. Um, and, you know, post that ongoing work. So I think it's going to go quite smoothly. We actually spent um, probably a good couple of hours making sure that everybody was very comfortable with the process that we put forth, um, understood how to use it, understood how to post things and label things so they were easily accessible and clear to the rest of the committee. So I'm anticipating that our communication process is actually quite improved um, from the previous you know, two iterations that I chaired, so I'm excited about that. Um, I just accessed the site the other day and I um, see um, some postings on there and we have different categories of postings, but I think that's going to work really well. Um, given that, you know, the vast difference in time zones and the difficulty certainly of bringing everybody together for a live meeting, it was wonderful to be able to do that for our initial meeting, but on an ongoing basis, this will be um, our primary way of communicating. Okay. Our listeners would probably be interested to know if they could get a little peek into what some of the changes that we might expect for this next version. But maybe it's too early at this point to know. Lisa, do you want to talk about that? Sure. I, I do think it really is a little early 
um, to make any specific you know, predictions in what um, the changes will be just because um, we have to start fresh each time. We have to really look at um, what is new in the literature. As Mary spoke to that um, literature review process, we want to look at it in a very objective way and not be you know, swayed by previous statements that were there. So um, it's really hard to say. There are some things um, that we found we were like inconsistent in some of the verbiage throughout the 2016. We're going to really focus on that to make sure that we're using consistent verbiage um, in all of the standards. I think, you know, as I personally look at um, the literature and the notifications that I get, we certainly, um, I think we will see some strengthening of recommendations, particularly in the areas of medication verification and safety, for example. Um, certainly seeing um, much more research, you know, relative to short peripheral catheters and midline catheters and some of the specific topics such as, you know, um, flushing technique, more research in that area. So while I can't say what the statements will say, um, certainly if, if you're, you know, re reading your journal of infusion nursing um, and keeping up with the rest of the literature, it will give you a clue of certainly um, some of the areas that may have some, you know, augmented research, maybe some changes in the recommendations as well. Mm, okay. So Mary Alexander, I'm going to turn over to you, and I'd like you to conclude our discussion today. I would like you to give us any of your closing thoughts, any, any additional information that would be important for our listeners to know. Sure, Dawn. I'd, I'd be happy to. Um, as I'm thinking about the whole process of the standards, I just wanted to highlight um, another area um, about the review process when we have the um, final draft completed by the committee and the fact that it does go out to a wide uh, um, um, array of individuals to um, look at the draft document. And this is before it's the final manuscript that will go to publication. And um, the people that are we ask to review are not only INS members, they're non-members, they're CRNIs, they're non-CRNIs, they're individuals in nursing, medicine, pharmacy, infection prevention, the legal community, and we also reach out to our industry partners. Um, we do ask for individuals to um, provide their feedback to us, and um, in addition to the feedback, to please include any of the evidence or research to support the statements that they're making. Um, I want our listeners to um, know that in the 2016 version of the standards that the committee um, had over 800 comments that they looked at. And I know for a fact that they looked at all 800 comments. So that's a big job. And it's an important part of ensuring that we're covering and be all aspects um, within the standards and making sure that it's a complete document. Um, we all look, know that patients are at the center of what we do, so um, certainly this revised standards is going to be helpful as we provide safe infusion care to, um, to all of our patients. 
INS members should feel comfortable with the Standards of Practice Committee's expertise and commitment to this revision process. They're very dedicated um, from start to finish um, to ensure that this will be a very strong document moving forward. And I do want to remind everyone that all members, as of December 31st, 2020, will receive a copy um, of the standards when they're released as a supplement to the Journal of Infusion Nursing. So that'll be something certainly to look forward to, Dawn. Very good. Thank you, Mary. And, and Lisa Gorski, I thank you as well. Mary Hagel, thank you. Um, you have been just a delight to talk to today on INS's Talking in Vain. We, are, we really appreciate that you took the time to tell us about the INS infusion therapy standards of practice, the revision process that's underway, and, and all of the work that goes into that. And we do thank you for that. And this concludes today's session of Talking in Vain. Thank you for listening.